It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 39, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Paul Dietman. Paul is the Emerging Market Specialist with Badgerland Financial, a member-owned rural lending cooperative and farm credit system institution serving southern Wisconsin. Wow. Okay, that wasn't the most exciting setup in the world. Paul is one of those guys. I've worked with him for 15 years in a variety of capacities, and he makes farm finances fun. He makes it interesting and he makes it really relatable. Paul's worked with farmers and farm financial issues for more than 25 years. First as an extension agent, then as director of the Wisconsin Farm Center and deputy secretary of agriculture for Wisconsin, and most recently in his role as a lender. He's worked with hundreds of farmers, helping them assess their farm financial situations. Paul is the co-author with me of the book, Fearless Farm Finances, subtitled Farm Financial Management Demystified. We talk about common pitfalls of beginning farmers, strategies for getting on the land, profitability and cash flow, how to set up early warning systems for your farm finances, and the guilt and shame that hamper our ability to deal with farm financial issues in a timely manner. Like I said, Paul's got the ability to Take farm finances and make them fun, interesting, and very accessible. Paul provided a ton of value in this episode, and I think you're going to enjoy it just as much as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Paul Dietman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you're making time for this this afternoon. I know you're moving right into your busy season now. Yeah, yeah, we definitely are. It's um, summer's kind of slow, but once we get into the meeting season and farmers are done with harvest, that's when we have a lot of business planning work to do and a lot of people looking at getting loans and that sort of thing. So I've given just a little bit of a background at the start of the show, but could you tell us more about your job now and where you're interfacing with agriculture? Sure. Well, I work for Badgerland Financial, which is part of the farm credit system. We're the farm credit cooperative that serves southern Wisconsin. And my position here, uh, my title is Emerging Market Specialist. And what that means is I run our beginning farmer program. And I also run what we call our Emerging Markets Loan Program, which is a loan program that's targeted to people who are operating in local and regional food systems. So it's um, anybody who's doing anything farm to fork, anything um, using sustainable production methods. So I work with a lot of organic farmers, a lot of people who are doing some sort of value-added processing, uh, direct marketing meat to consumers, you know, mostly smaller scale um, producers or growers in uh and doing things that where they're interacting directly with consumers. And you came to Badgerland from a from a long background of helping farmers in a variety of different roles, right? Right. I spent 16 years with the state of Wisconsin. I was for 11 years I was county ag agent uh, with UW Extension in Sauk County, and then I left. Uh, Saw County Extension, I went down to the State Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection here in Wisconsin and ran the Wisconsin Farm Center, which is the Farmers Assistance Program there. And in that program, we have the Farmers Hotline. So it was an 800 number that farmers could call if they were having problems or, um, or needed some help with the farm transfer, beginning farmers, 
help with business plans, that sort of thing. We also had the farm mediation arbitration program where we mediated disputes that involve farmers. Sometimes they were credit disputes, sometimes disputes over government program payments, that sort of thing. And, um, and then we also had rural electric power services, which was part of the farm center as well, which way back was the stray voltage program. More recently, we had a couple of veterinarians on staff who do um, who work with dairy farmers who may be having production issues that may or may not be stray voltage. What what years were you at the Farm Center, Paul? I'm trying to remember if you and I started working together on the Moses board and and doing workshops for the for the Moses Organic Farming Conference before you got to the Farm Center when you were still doing extension because I kind of think we were. Yeah, yeah, it was while I was still in extension. Um, I've actually been to the Organic Farming Conference every year since 94. So I, the first time I came was when the conference was still being held down at Cincinnati and I was in graduate school. So, um, and I've never missed one since. I just I love that conference. So, um, but yeah, I think you and I, I think I joined the Moses board maybe in, I want to say it was 04, something like that. I was on for, I think, seven years. I mean, it's always been one of the weird things to me about you, Paul, is that, um, I mean, you're an extension agent and somebody who works in government who is, who's been very pro-organic, very pro-local, pro-grazing, other alternative agriculture programs since long before that was cool. Yeah, I just, I, I, well, maybe even backing up further, uh, before I went to grad school, I worked for a livestock marketing cooperative here in Wisconsin that, uh, that was doing well for a while and then, uh, then kind of hit the skids and in fact, um, was in pretty serious financial trouble. And some of the farmers that had done business with us were in pretty serious financial trouble. My boss was indicted and there were a lot of awful things that happened. And I kind of, it kind of forced me to do a lot of soul searching, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I thought I was interested in learning more about sustainable agriculture because I felt like I was just coming out of unsustainable agriculture. And, uh, and so that's what led me to go back to graduate school and, and start trying to learn something about sustainable ag and just really became a passion of mine. And then you took that passion for sustainable agriculture and turned it towards the financial side of things, because that's been your focus for a very long time. Yeah, my undergraduate degree from the University of Illinois is in uh, agricultural economics, and I was always really interested in farm financial management and used that as a focus when I was in grad school as I was studying sustainable ag, but looking at the financial aspects of it and, and how the numbers worked. And then um, when I went into extension, you know, you're always kind of expected to specialize in a certain area and farm financial management became my area of specialization. Um, also had this interest in sustainable ag and in smaller scale agriculture and people doing things that were creative on their farms. And so I, I did farm financial management with those folks, but I also did a lot of farm financial management work with relatively large dairy operations primarily. Um, and did, you know, did a lot of financial analysis when people were looking at dairy expansions and, and those sorts of changes in their operations. So, so it was a, it was a nice way to balance my interests, you know, and use that farm financial management, um, whatever expertise I happen to have, uh, in both scales of agriculture. Well, and across, a real wide spectrum, but I do, I always remember that this, this one story that you tell whenever I think about you and, and how you interface with farmers and with finance about a dairy farmer and, and trying to, to have him go through some investment analysis, you know, some more formal, like 
actually sitting down and crunching numbers instead of going, I want this shiny thing and, uh, and a conversation that you guys had that I think you'd be in a better position to relate than I would. Yeah, it was, it was actually while we were working on the fearless farm finances book. And I, I wrote the chapter on investment analysis, which I love doing investment analysis. I just, I really get into that. And, and so I was, <laughs> I was really proud of the chapter as as it was drafted and we sent it out for review and one of the reviewers sent a message back and said, man, if I had to go through this kind of investment analysis, every time I was making a major capital investment on the farm, it would take all the fun out of it for me. <laughs> and I, it, I think you and I were talking about it at that time. And of course, with my experience at the farm center and especially after the dairy crisis of 2009, when we were working with a tremendous number of farmers who were going through um, bankruptcy, it was the, the largest number of bankruptcies we'd ever had in the state of Wisconsin was 09. And then it got worse in 10 and it was still bad in 11. But uh, that comment made me think, wow, if you think going through an investment analysis before you make the investment takes the fun out of farming, you ought to try going through bankruptcy because I've, I've worked with an awful <laughs> lot of farmers who were in that situation, and that is definitely no fun. That does seem to be a theme in your work. That, And I know I, I know more about the Farm Center now than I did six months ago because my partner's working there now. Um, and and she's she's always dealing with people who are, I mean, they're in, they're in trouble. Oh, yeah. And and so it seems like you're kind of like the guy that gets called in when things aren't going right. Yeah, it was definitely that, definitely that way when I was with the farm center and, and working here at Badgerland is a little bit different because it's, you know, we're working with mostly people who are pretty strong credit. Um, although I still occasionally get a call through uh, farm aid. Uh, they, you know, I worked with them a fair amount when I was at the farm center and occasionally if they have someone in Wisconsin who's having some financial issues, they'll, uh, they'll direct them my way. And, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, you, you work with a few people who are in such serious trouble and you see the kind of, the kind of suffering that they go through. And, uh, it, it's hard not to, not to want to do everything you can to try to keep people from getting into that situation in the first place. Well, I think that's the cool thing about a lot of the work that you're doing is it's around not just responding to that, but but doing some education to try to help people get to a point where they don't run into that problem, or at least if they're going to run into that problem, that they see it long enough in advance that they can do something about it. Right. And it's the thing that one thing that's really exciting to me in the last couple of years is that there's an awful lot of young people who want to get started farming and they're, they want to primarily get started through uh, market gardening or CSAs or maybe direct marketing of meat. Um, a lot of these folks are coming into agriculture and they aren't coming from an ag background. So they don't have a family farm to go back to. They have to start off on their own. And there is a real hunger for the business planning for the fin They want to build their financial management skills. They know how important it is. And that I find that really exciting because they, they want to know, they want to do a good job. They want to avoid that, that tough situation. And, uh, and they're, it's great working with them. They're a great audience because they're, you know, they're really receptive to, um, to learning the skills. So I know that when I started farming and, and I, I graduated with a horticulture degree from the university of Wisconsin and had every intention of going into farming, spent a bunch of years working on farms all around the country. But by the time I started my own place, I didn't know diddly about running a business and, and, my real experience with financial management had to do with some kind of half-assed work at a farm that I managed uh, out in Maine. And then 
my um, a couple of courses that I'd taken in holistic management. So what what do you need to know financially when you're getting started farming? Oh boy, there's a That's lot. That's a nice big question for you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than just telling somebody to read the Fearless Farm Finances book, where would you tell people to focus their efforts? Well, if I had to pick one thing and say this is the single most important thing that you'll do in getting started with a farm, it would be doing a cash flow projection, month by month cash flow projection. Because I think there's a tendency people will do an enterprise budget and they may say, I'm going to operate a CSA and I'm going to, I'm going to sell, I'm going to grow three acres of vegetables. I'm going to sell $15,000 an acre. That's $45,000. I'm estimating my production costs going to be another 15,000 or something. And, and so we'll have $30,000 to live on and I can live pretty good on $30,000. Well, what they don't take into consideration is all of that $45,000 of income doesn't show up in January. You know, it shows up in July and August and September and, and, uh, but your expenses do show up in January, February, March, April, you know, so you got a lot of money going out, nothing coming in those early months of the year and you got to survive, you know, you have to feed your family, you have to take care of yourself. And, and if you've got a mortgage or other payments, even student loan payments, those payments still have to be made, even, even when there's no money coming in. And so that's, that's the one thing I really try to harp on people. Don't just do an enterprise budget. It's a great feasibility study to put together an enterprise budget, but you really need to break it out into that month by month cash flow and make sure that the cash flow is going to be coming in when you need it. Um, and if it's not, come up with an alternative plan. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't farm. It just means maybe you need to have some off-farm income in those winter months, or maybe you need to wait a little bit before you start your operation so you build up some working capital, some cash that you can fall back on uh, during the times that, that money isn't coming in, or you set up an operating loan. Or, I mean, there's a lot of different options, a lot of different things you can do. But if you do that cash flow projection, you'll know uh, when you're going to need it. And where do people get the information for sitting down and, and doing a cash flow projection? I mean, again, I spent, I spent years and years working on farms before I ever saw the bookkeeping system or, or a monthly financial report to know when and how the money was being spent. When you're just getting started in farming, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of people out there hearing this now going, oh my God, the one more damn thing I have to do before I get to start farming. But um, how do you, how do you actually sit down and, and break out those monthly figures when you, when you just don't know? You really need to, it points out the need to have a mentor or to, to have people that you can talk to who've been doing this for a while that can kind of help you with that. And it may be another farmer, probably is going to be another farmer, but it could be a county extension agent. It could be um, a technical college instructor. It could be somebody at the farm center who can kind of help you work through the cash flow projections. Um, I think the, the information, there's getting to be more and more information. You know, back 10, 15 years ago, there was nothing. And I think as more people have gotten into this business, I think that um, that the resources have come along too. And of course, that was part of the impetus of us writing the Fearless Farm Finances book was we wanted to have a have a place, you know, a resource that you could have on your bookshelf that you can pull out and it would be timeless and have all the key pieces in there at some point, you know, and a person might not sit down and read the book cover to cover, but when they need to figure out how to do cash flow planning, they can go to the book, pull it out and, and read 10 or 15 pages and they've got it all right there. What are some of the other critical elements of a business plan 
that you see? I mean, obviously that that cash flow financing, but what else do people? Where else are you seeing people maybe falling short or or consistently making mistakes when they're when they're getting into agriculture? Well, I think there's a there's a tendency people really want to own their farm right away, and I understand that 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 people want to own the land that they're farming on. But sometimes it doesn't necessarily make sense to buy the land, you know, or at least not buy much if you're going to buy any. Um, And so I I tend to try to encourage people to look at leasing, at least initially, and maybe even for a longer period of time. At least get your feet under you. The land, land can be a good investment, but when you're getting started farming, it ends up taking so much to make a mortgage payment you know, and and so you're setting yourself up with a lot of overhead expense before you really have your sales established. And so I, that's that's another area where I see people maybe maybe making some mistakes, or they try to buy the land more quickly than they probably should. And um, when I mentioned before how investment analysis is kind of a passion of mine, that's where where I can really get into that with someone, you know. So does it make sense to buy the land and take out a mortgage or does it make sense to lease the land and maybe make some other capital investments that would give you a much better rate of return on the investment? You know, you only have so much money, you only have so much time, you only have so much labor to invest in your farm operation. So where do we take those three resources and invest them in a place that's going to give you the best possible return on uh, on the investment? So one of the one of the pushbacks that I oftentimes get when I talk to beginning farmers about this idea of leasing land is, is well, it's, it's twofold. It's one, um, I grow vegetables, so I have to have a place to wash and pack my vegetables. And how do I make those kinds of investments when it's just leased land? And the other is I'm an organic farmer, so I'm actually putting a lot of work into building my soil and I don't want to put that kind of money and effort into building soil on land that I don't have a long term on land that I don't have secured for the long term. That's and those are good questions. And the, the soil investment is probably a tougher question than the than the capital investment. In fact, I just I, well, probably six months or so ago, I had this conversation with a with a uh, relatively young farmer. He was renting his land renting the house in the buildings. And I think he was renting about 20 acres of land and he had a fantastic lease arrangement. The guy who owned the property also owned another house in the area, um, was from out of state. would come in and vacation at this place. Um, he just wanted somebody there who was taking care of the property, taking care of his other house for him. And, and that was pretty much what the lease arrangement was. I mean, it was very, very favor- favorable to the farmer. And the farmer wanted to see if, what it would take to buy that, the farm that he was leasing. And so we went through some numbers and he had, and I said, well, why, what's your interest in buying this land? Why are you so anxious to buy it now? And he said, well, I really want to put up a, a pack shed and I'd like to put up a walk-in cooler as well. And I just don't think it makes sense to make a capital investment on, on a farm that I'm just leasing. And I said, well, that's a good question. So let's figure that out, you know, and if, and what do you think it would add to your cash flow if you had this pack shed and you had um, the walking cooler? They gave me a figure, you know, it would add X number of dollars to his cash flow each year. And what would it cost you to put it in? So you knew what the cost would be to put it in. We did a quick investment analysis and looked at, well, if you had a five-year lease, you made this investment now, you're able to increase your cash flow for five years. At the end of five years, if you walked away from it, you didn't get anything back out of your initial capital investment, 
the rate of return on that investment was something like 20% annually. And so then we looked at, well, what if you bought the farm? Well, if you bought the farm, you'd use up every bit of cash that you have to make the down payment. You'd have nothing left over to put up the pack shed or the walk-in cooler, which was the original plan. And you'd set yourself up for overhead that's like five times what he was paying now. You know, it it just, it was kind of an eye-opener for me because he couldn't possibly imagine that, that you could make a capital investment on a farm that you don't own. And it actually makes really, really good financial sense to do that. Now the the soil investment is different. How do you how do you quantify the investment in quality soil or in soil health? That's that's tough to do. You know, you'll see it over time, but it's but how do you put it into a cash flow projection? It's tough. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to find somebody to talk to us about that. Because yeah. um, I think it's an interesting idea, but it seems like the key thing that you just mentioned was the long term lease on that. Right. So having that five-year lease makes it make sense to make a long-term investment that's going to that's gonna pay off in five years. But if you don't have that, then I can't imagine that if, if you're just doing a, a year-to-year rolling ag lease, that that's really going to make sense. No, no, it would really make it tough to, to come out if it was just an annual lease. So that, you're right, that is the, the long-term lease is the key in that situation because that's the only way you're going to going to be able to recoup, recoup your capital investment. So that would be something, for example, that you as a lender would be looking at to make sure that that was in place before you put out money to, for somebody to do something like dig an irrigation well. Right. Yeah, we would want to see that. And I think it's becoming more common in agriculture. It's not, I wouldn't say it's common yet, but it's becoming more common. Outside of agriculture, it's very common. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of fairly large businesses that uh, retail businesses don't own their physical store locations. You know, they have 20 year leases on them and they put their capital into the inventory, which is turning over three, four times a year. That's where they're making their money. They don't want to have an investment in real estate. You know, it doesn't make sense for them to have, have their capital tied up in real estate. They want to have it tied up in their inventory that's turning over. And so I think that concept is maybe becoming a bit more common in agriculture, but it's, it's certainly not the norm. You know, we, we, farmers, it's something deep in farmers that they need to own the land. They need to own their equipment. They want to own everything, which I understand, but sometimes it doesn't make sense to do that. Yeah. I think that's, that's always the balancing act. I think in, in working with farmers on business stuff is, is how do I make the money thing work while I hold on to the rest of the values that I've got and where can I compromise and where do I need to hold fast? Right. I had somebody recently tell me though, that the ultimate value was to be farming next year. You know, (laughs) that every, every, all of the other considerations were really secondary to that. It's, It's, can I keep farming? Because I do more good if I stay in business than I do if I go out of business because I'm holding on to the value that says I have to own the farm or I can't put things in plastic clamshells or whatever other objections might come up when, when a farmer's looking at what are their, what are their quality of life goals or what are their, what are their values relative to having the farm operation? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good comment. And it's, it's something I try not to lose sight of because I'm an, I'm kind of a numbers guy at heart, <laughs> obviously, and uh, but I, I certainly understand that that the numbers aren't the central part of the story when it comes to a farm operation, you know, and and it's it is 
the values that people hold and they want to live on a farm, they want to work on a farm. There's, they get a tremendous amount of satisfaction from growing food and, and giving it to people. And especially in, in uh, the world that, that you and I both work in quite a bit. And that's, the folks who are selling direct to consumers, you know, and they actually get to see their consumer and hear the feedback directly from them. Um, and the way I, the way I explain it when I give a talk about farm financial management is I say, you should set your quality of life goal first because it's easy to set your business goal. And then your quality of life goes out the window, trying to, trying to meet your business goal. If you set your quality of life goal first, you mentioned holistic management before, it's a central tenet of, of holistic management. Set your quality of life. What kind of lifestyle do you want to live? And then make the business work towards that lifestyle goal. And I totally agree with that. However, if you don't have the financial situation to make it possible to do that, you're not going to be able to continue doing what you love. I just think that's that's such an important message to get out there for people who are well, like I, like I was, I ideologically motivated. Um, I mean, and, and it is a matter of figuring out how you balance all that stuff out. Yeah. So, and, and I don't think there's, there's obviously not a cookie cutter solution to that. No, no, everybody's situation is unique. So what other considerations would you put into, uh, to getting started on a farm that might be a little bit, uh, contrary to what most people might be thinking about if they're, if they're out there looking at, you know, gee, I want to start a vegetable farm. Oh, uh, from a financial perspective, there there are a lot of different things that you want to be um, considering when you're thinking about getting started with a farm. One thing that we look at a lot is working capital, and so that's looking at your current assets relative to your current liabilities. Um, current so current assets, assets and current liabilities being uh, current assets would be cash, anything that's going to be converted to cash or going to be used up on the farm within a year. So, um, so it's your checking account balance, it's your savings account balance. It might be prepaid seed and other supplies. Um, it could be market livestock. It could be feed inventory. You know, anything that's either cash or that's going to be converted to cash used up on the farm within a year would be a current asset. Current liabilities would be any bills that are either due now or that are going to come due within a year. Um, okay. it, it's going to include principal payments on a longer term loan, any principal payments that come due within within the uh, coming year. It might be property taxes that are going to come due. It might be a bill with the co-op or with your seed supplier or whoever. Um, and so we, we look at current assets minus current liabilities and see what that dollar amount is. And of course, it should be a positive amount, but it should really be at least 15% of your farm's gross income in a year's time. Um, I think there's a, there's a tendency, beginning farmers uh, tend to try to get going as quickly as they can, and they overlook the fact that they, they should have some working capital built up before they get started. If they don't, they don't have much resilience. Anything goes wrong and they're sunk. So that's something I uh, sometimes counsel people, you know, you wait a year, save, build up a down payment, build up some working capital reserves before you try to jump in. Because if you jump in too quickly, you'll, you know, you're setting yourself up in a, such a vulnerable position that, that uh, you may not last for very long, you know, and, and again, it's, the staying power, giving yourself some staying power and being able to be here from one season to the next is really important. And that's something that really any farm should be looking at, right? This isn't, I mean, that, that 15% working capital, that's not just for a, for a farm that's getting started. That's for a farm that's been in business for a number of years would be in the same situation, right? Yeah, you bet. It's, it's, uh, 
no matter how long you've been farming, no matter what type of farming you do, that's that's the benchmark. And it's a minimum. It's not like a target, get to 15 and then you're done. It's really kind of a minimum that uh, that you want to get to. And is that going to be true across all different enterprises? I mean, that's something I always wonder about when I'm looking at at ratios and people say, oh, you know, you should have a two to one current ratio. And you know, well, is that the same whether I'm doing dairy or whether I'm doing vegetables? Yeah, the working capital number is um, a lot of other ratios. Maybe, maybe not. You know, profit margin is one that that uh, really varies by the type of enterprise. You know, I've got some enterprises that are pretty labor intensive. Um, the profit margin needs to be pretty high. You know, we might say 20% is a good average, but for a really labor intensive enterprise, maybe 40% isn't even enough. On the other hand, a really capital intensive enterprise, maybe 10% is actually pretty good. So, um, yeah, so there are some ratios that it really depends on the type of enterprise you have, but that working capital ratio that, that cuts across pretty much all scales and all types of enterprises. You want to get to that 15% of, of gross income. Well, and I guess that's kind of the equivalent of having a couple months salary in the bank in case yeah. everything blows up and goes wrong if you're if you're working for wages. Right. It's a really good analogy. Yeah, it it helps you withstand a, a downturn. Also it helps you take advantage of an unexpected opportunity. You know, maybe your neighbor has a piece of equipment that they're willing to sell, but they need to sell it right now. And if you've got working capital, you've got the ability to purchase it. I remember my friend Mike Ryan in, in Decorah when I was farming and the economy went in the tank in, what was that, 2000, 2008, 2009. Yeah. And he, I, re, I remember him coming onto my farm and saying, I love a recession. He says, all the good deals come out in a recession. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was in a position I didn't have any working capital at that point. I couldn't take advantage of any deals if I wanted to. But yeah. I just remember laughing, laughing about that. <laughs> I guess that's that's I mean it is really those kinds of opportunities. Um, and I think in a it seems to me that in a specialty crops environment, you know, some of those opportunities are it's it's not like they come along every day. You know, right. a farm going out of business and making specialty equipment available that you wouldn't be able to get access to otherwise. Uh, you know, things, people that have got things set up, especially for doing vegetables or especially for doing small scale dairy, um, you know, being able to take advantage of that's not something you can just go on Craigslist and uh, and and root something out uh, exactly. on a moment's notice. Right. What else, as people are looking at, at starting their farms, uh, would you encourage folks to be taking a look at when they're putting together their business plans? Um, I would say, look, take a look at opportunities to, um, to partner with someone else, you know, whether it's an experienced farmer, whether it's a, uh, maybe a social impact investor, which we're seeing a lot more of those, especially in in uh, what we would call emerging markets, but people who maybe have have a sizable amount of money behind them and they really want to help a beginning farmer get started or they really believe in, in organic or sustainable production methods and they want to help a young person get started in, in uh, using those methods. You know, any kind of strategic partnership like that if if someone has the ability to do it and there's and it takes a lot of ability you know you have to have really good communication skills you have to be you know you have to have the ability to kind of swallow your ego once in a while and and that sort of thing um it's not easy but but um certainly worth taking a look you know i mentioned the guy earlier with the tremendous uh, rental arrangement that he had well 
his personality allowed him to have that kind of a, an arrangement that was financially really beneficial to him. You know, it was really working out well for him. Well, and I suppose that's kind of a fundamental business skill, right? Is, is figuring out how to, how to mold your personality into what other people need you to have. You know, it's not exactly what we think of when we're, when we're thinking about being farmers, you know, I was like, I, I don't, I don't like people. I'm going to go, I'm going to go be a farmer. Right. You, know? but I guess, you, mean, you kind of still have to make all that stuff work. Yeah. You, you don't become a farmer because you want to have to check with someone else with every move that you make, you know? And so you're, you're doing it because you want to be your, an independent business person. And so to tell somebody whose goal is to be an independent business person that they should figure out a way to have a strategic partnership with someone is it flies a little bit in the face of what they want to do. And I'm guessing that those strategic partnerships that you're talking about would be, it's not like you're just in a strategic partnership with somebody. You're probably doing a strategic partnership for land and maybe coming to a place like Badgerland financial for some, for startup capital. Would that be a reasonable thing to, to expect? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, and we, and we partner ourselves like with um, the USDA farm service agency with the beginning farmer loan program, for example, where, um, and I think particularly of their beginning farmer down payment loan program, where the beginning farmer puts up a 5% down payment, um, FSA finances 45% of a, of a farm purchase, and then we finance 50%. And so it, it really is a, a partnership between the three of us to make it work. And, uh, and it can be really advantageous, especially to the beginning farmer, because the interest rates with FSA are, are very low. Uh, they're below market interest rates because it's, it's federal money. Our part, of course, will be at, at um, our normal interest rates, but we have to lock the term for at least 20 years. And um, in FSA, when entering into an arrangement like that, FSA will cover some things like appraisal costs and, and other things that um, that otherwise would come out of the farmer's pocket. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different examples of how different entities can partner. Um, you know, we're fortunate in Wisconsin, we've got a lot of great educational uh, institutions, both um, government and non-government. And we've got, uh, you know, just all sorts of opportunities for young people to get to get the kinds of information and knowledge that they need to get started farming. Um, yeah, I don't know. I Personally, I think this is probably one of the best times there's ever been to, to start a farm. Really? Because that... It's not necessarily what we're hearing from a lot of people who are out there saying, well, where's the money? You know, where's the money so I can start my farm? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I hear it too, because I, you know, they come to us for loans and, and we can't make every loan. Unfortunately, um, we do require a pretty substantial down payment and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but the reason I say it's a good time to get started farming, even though land values are pretty high and, and other things are expensive and, and, uh, and money isn't necessarily easy to come by. Um, but when you think of the infrastructure that we have surrounding beginning farmers and the number of people who really want to help beginners get started and the number of people who have an interest in getting started. You know, I, I graduated as an undergrad in 1986 at the height of the farm crisis. And, and I think of a, a whole generation that I went to school with that were lost to agriculture. They, they chose to do anything but go into agriculture. You know, they came from farms and their parents were saying, stay out of this business. It's, it's a horrible business because, you know, it was in 1986. It's not, not a horrible business anymore. I mean, it's, it's actually a tremendous business right now. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's yeah, money's not necessarily easy to come by. But FSA, like I said before, the their beginning farmer loan programs are pretty good. Um, they may people may have to start a little bit differently than they expected to. You know, it was the traditional way of starting a farm operation was you went home, you farmed with your parents and eventually maybe you bought some livestock or bought some machinery and eventually you bought some land and, and the parents are essentially sharing their equity with the next generation to help them get started. Well, we got a lot of people starting now who don't come from a farm uh, and they don't have that equity to be shared. And so that's where when I talk about a strategic alliance, sometimes it's someone who has really very little to do with agriculture, but wants to help somebody get started and is willing to do something to kind of share their equity with that next generation. So it's, it's a different way of starting a farm than, than maybe was traditional. Um, but still some good opportunities. As you were talking, I was thinking about all of the very experienced farmers that I know, people who've been farming for 20, 30, 40 years, who are not farming where they started, who are maybe on their second, third, or even fourth iteration of their of their farming operations. And I mean, a lot of times they've, they've maintained the same identity throughout, but sometimes they've They've even abandoned the identity and made a, you know, made a move and kind of started over again. And I suppose in some ways that actually gives you some creative freedom that you wouldn't have if you were walking into a piece of land that was equity that your parents had or equity that was given to you that you didn't need to earn back in the farm. Uh, Because you really can do different things and you can start over and you can decide that, Hey, this, this clay hilltop really sucks for growing vegetables. I'm going to go find myself some good Sandy loam. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the mindset too, you know, if you, if you come from a farm, multi-generation farm, there's a certain way that your family's always done things. And, and it's very uncomfortable for somebody to break out of that, the way that things have always been done. But the people who are who are farming now or got started within the last 20, 30 years and didn't come from a farm background and people like you talk about that maybe they move operations several times, um, you know, they they tend to be pretty creative people and they have the freedom to do a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't have if you if you came from a more traditional background. You know, and, and sometimes that's a that's a big advantage. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in the modern agricultural environment, you probably don't want to be doing what the last generation was doing on the farm. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that the last generation was wrong, but times change and things evolve and, and, uh, you know, and consumers certainly change over time. And, and it's a, it's a whole different landscape than it was 20, 30 years ago. Well, Paul, let's take a moment here and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. In the wild, where our crop plants' ancestors evolved their microbial partnerships, plants are provided with nutrients from the soil through the work of partner microbes in their employ. Wide-ranging roots reach an abundant supply of nutrients and microbes, even in less than ideal conditions. And now that you've gone and stuck that seed in a little tiny container, it has to get everything it needs right there in a few cubic centimeters of soil. By providing compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients, Vermont Compost ensures that your plants have what they need consistently. 
And now, through December 21st, Vermont Compost pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price, with the best shipping options, delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers and spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. And even though we owned a four-wheeled tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled important jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Paul Dietman from Badgerland Financial. So, Paul, one of the questions that I get a lot uh, from people is, is what exactly are you talking about when you talk about profitability? And I remember this even when I was getting started in farming or before I got started in farming, asking farmers and saying, well, how much, how much profit did you make last year? And having them say, well, it really depends on how you define profit. I mean, is it, is it what's on the bottom line of my schedule F or is it all of these other different factors? So if we're not just, if we're not just taking what I have left in my pocket at the end of the year, which isn't necessarily what was on the bottom line of my schedule F, how are we defining farm profitability and evaluating that compared to our cash flow? Yeah, and profitability is a really confusing concept for people. And it, and it's confusing partially because I think people often use it use the term in the wrong way or don't really understand the definition of profitability when they use it as a term. Profitability at base is looking at things like rate of return on assets, rate of return on equity, and operating profit margin. And so to calculate profitability, we use an income statement or profit and loss statement, but we also have to put it together with the balance sheet, the farm's balance sheet, which is a listing of everything you own and everything you owe, assets and liabilities. Um, so profitability can be kind of confusing. It's If you look at your Schedule F, that bottom line number, it says it's net farm income, really isn't because it's including some non-cash items. Um, it's missing a lot of non-cash items, things like when you build up feed inventory, for example, doesn't get picked up on your Schedule F. And so, um, you know, we can use the Schedule F and the balance sheet and massage it a bit, bring in a little bit more information, and we can calculate profitability from those two documents, just the Schedule F and, and, uh, and the balance sheet. But I think a lot of times when people talk about profitability, they actually mean cash flow. And cash flow is all the cash that comes in all the cash that goes out and how much is left at the end of the day. So what's that, what's your checking account balance on December 31st? That's cash flow. That's not profitability. Well, and that's actually what, that's what QuickBooks calls the profit and loss statement when you print that out every month. Yeah. And it, which is, yeah, which is a misnomer, you know, it's, um, 
yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of QuickBooks. I think it can be a I think it can be a useful tool if it's set up right and if people understand the limitations of it. But uh, but I think I think it can be kind of confusing and lead people to some false conclusions occasionally. Um, but profitability really is looking at rate of return on assets, rate of return on equity, and in order to calculate rate of return on assets, rate of return on equity, we also have to include a figure that represents a return to the farmer's labor and management. And that's a piece that often gets missed when we calculate profitability. The farmer, I think it's it's been traditional that you say, well, whatever is left is what I get. You know, I don't right. I don't consider myself getting wage someplace in in my farm operation. It's just at the end of the year, anything that's left over, that's mine. Well, it's really not fair. You know, you've only got so much money to invest in a farm operation. You only got so much time. You've only got so much labor that you can invest in a farm operation as well. And so you should reasonably expect to make a return on your investment of labor and time, just like you expect to make a return on your investment of money. And, uh, and that's the thing I think that gets missed. It's a good way to start an argument with a farmer too. Is to yeah. say, <laughs> what, what yeah, no was, kidding. What's my I mean, labor worth? <laughs> I've, I've actually seen some pretty vicious words exchanged on Facebook about that whole idea, you know, I, and, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm curious. I mean, that really sounds like a, that sounds like a banker's definition of profitability. Profitability. So I, another question that comes up is, so well, what, what difference does it make if the farm is, is profitable according to those definitions for rate of return on assets, rate of return on equity? And that's a logical question because it, most farmers aren't going to say, well, this year I earned a 5% rate of return on, on assets. And I think if I bought a farm five miles down the road, I could achieve a 7% rate of return on assets. So I'm going to sell this farm and buy that one. You know, it they don't make decisions that way and it isn't going to influence right. their farm operation that way. So more important is cash flow and figuring out, do we have enough cash flow that we can survive from one year to the next? Not only survive, but we cover all of our operating expenses. We adequately cover family living. We make our any principal and interest payments that we've committed to making, any other loan payments that we've committed to making. And we still have a little bit of extra cash left over to build up working capital reserves and also to replace capital equipment as it wears out. You know, and some people say, well, you know, tractors, they actually increase in value. They don't decrease in value over time. So why would we need to have capital asset replacement in there? Well, everybody wants to upgrade equipment at some point and your roof on your barn is going to fall in at some point and other things are going to happen that are going to take some capital investment. And so you want to have enough cash flow that you, you have something set aside to, to make those purchases when it comes time to make them. You know, it doesn't do any good if you're, you cover your operating expenses, you just barely cover family living, you can't afford health insurance, and you've got nothing left for capital asset replacement, but you're making your mortgage payment. Well, eventually you get the farm paid off, your your health has gone down the tubes, and your buildings are falling in. And how is anybody better off in that situation? So when I talk about cash flow, I try to bring all those things into the picture. You would actually say that that cash flow component is much more important than talking about profitability in terms of rates of return on assets and things like that. Yeah, in, definitely in the short run, cash flow is is much more critical because if you don't have cash flow, if your cash flow is negative, you can't survive very many months, and you're gonna you're gonna be heading for foreclosure and bankruptcy. You know, and I've I've worked with enough farmers 
uh, who've been in that situation that, that I'll do anything to help somebody avoid it. Um, so cash flow is really critical short run. Profitability, even though we tend not to think about it on a day-to-day basis or maybe even on an annual basis, where it comes into play is somewhere down the road when you're ready to retire or you're ready to turn the farm over to the next generation. And if you haven't invested in anything outside of the farm, the farm becomes your retirement. And the only way that you can cash out of that farm is by selling it at the highest value that you can possibly sell it to the next generation. Well, if the farm hasn't been profitable for a long period of time, the next generation isn't going to be able to buy those assets at market value and continue the farm the way it's always been. So that's where, that's where we start seeing an unprofitable farm issues with an unprofitable farm start to pop up is, is at that point. And that's why farm assets transfer at less than market value because they have to, if the farm's going to continue as an, as a going concern. So Paul, I, I kind of like to push back on this idea of profitability because you're on the one hand, you're talking about cash flow, And on the other hand, you're talking about if you're not running a profitable farm over the years, you, you end up with something that's, that's not worth what it should be worth at the end of the farm's life cycle. So help me get at this definition. Then what is profitability? When you talk about running a profitable farm, how would you know? You can, you can actually calculate profitability um, and you, and you can do it with a balance sheet and a schedule F. That's why I, I encourage farmers to do a balance sheet on January 1st every year, because you're going to be forced to do your schedule F every year. And generally, the Schedule F is going to be on a calendar year basis. If you do a balance sheet on January 1st every year, you'll also have a balance sheet on an annual basis, and then you can calculate profitability. Um, Schedule F is a good place to start with profitability. You need the balance sheet, though, because another there are some other components that need to be pulled into the into the profitability equation, and it's things that what we'll do is call an accrual adjustment. So if you look at your January one balance sheet, and then the next January one balance sheet, and you compare certain categories, things like accounts receivable, accounts payable, um, raised breeding livestock, um, accrued interest, and there's there's a couple other categories. We're going to look at how those change from one year to the next, and they're either adding value to the farm operation or they're taking value away, and we want to work those into the profitability equation. Profitability is, it's a little trickier to, to calculate, I think, than cash flow. Um, but you need cash flow and profitability to be a, a sustainable farm operation. Now you can be, you can have a, an operation that cash flows well and is unprofitable. We see that a lot of times when someone's been farming for a long time, the farm's paid off. If they had children, the children are grown and they've left the house. Um, and so their family living expenses are pretty low. So they can farm for a long time being unprofitable as long as they have positive cash flow. That's when when um, it becomes a terminal operation because the next generation isn't going to be able to buy it, buy the assets at market value and keep it going. You can be you can have negative cash flow and be profitable, which I think is maybe even a more difficult concept for people to to visualize. But where an example of where we see that happen is maybe somebody's building up a beef cow herd. And they've got a lot of cash that's going into the beef cow herd, so the, the cash is negative. You know, you're plugging money in, you're paying for feed, you're paying for breeding fees, you're paying for young stock or whatever. You're building up the herd, and when we take into account the value of the raised breeding livestock, you might actually be profitable, even though your cash flow has been negative. 
Because so, you're in, the, the value of the cows is increasing. Right. But you've, you've spent more money than you've taken in. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I'll, I'll work with people who are building up a beef cow herd and they get really discouraged because they feel like, oh man, we just, we put thousands and thousands of dollars into this and, and we're losing money. Well, no, you're not. If you look at your balance sheet and how it's changed from one year to the next, you've built up a tremendous amount of value on your balance sheet. Yeah, you can't live on it right now, but you've built up value. You've created something of value in it. And you, rate of return on assets, rate of return on equity, you've actually been profitable. You just have had negative cash flow. I worked with a beginning farmer a few years ago who was was complaining that they they weren't making any money. And they showed me their bookkeeping and they had actually expensed a $6,000 tractor over the course of the year. Oh, and yeah. it had taken a, you know, and this was a very small, you know, micro farm at this point, I think they were doing an acre of production and, and they'd, they'd taken all, they'd paid cash for the tractor. So of course they didn't have any money left at the end of the year, you know, and, and I think recognizing that becomes really important in understanding your business's actual performance. Right. Yeah. And a cost like that really needs to be spread over, over a longer period of time. Yeah. We see that occasionally someone's got a, an operating loan with us, for example, and an operating loan by definition is supposed to be used for operating expenses, which means it should be paid down to zero at the end of the year. And, you know, sometimes people go to an auction or something, buy some equipment using their operating loan, which is okay, but you really need to then shift that purchase over to a longer term uh, loan, you know, maybe a five-year note or something like that. So that you're spreading the cost and spreading that cash flow demand over five years instead of having it all come due at, at December. At the same time, I think a lot of farmers are really averse to debt. I mean, especially when you go back to the literature about farming, you know, the Wendell Berry and the West Jackson um, and the other, the other people that were doing some of that really intensive writing in the 1990s, there was a lot of frowning about debt because of what had happened in the eighties. So people I think are general are looking to, to get out of debt just as quickly as they possibly can, which I think a lot of times people are going, well, I'll pay off this, I'll pay off this seed drill or I'll pay off this tractor by the end of the year because I don't want debt. Yeah. And that's, that's the other place where profitability becomes important because if you're, if you're getting a rate of return on assets of say 4% and you're paying 5% for the money that you've borrowed, you, it makes no sense for you to take any debt at all because you're borrowing money at 5% to earn 4% back on it. You see what right. I'm saying? And yep. so in a situation like that, if you've got positive cash flow and your, and your profitability is low, you should take all of your excess cash and try to pay down debt as quickly as possible because it makes no sense for you to have any debt on the farm. Um, on the other hand, if you're operating a profitable business and you're borrowing money at 5% and you're getting an 8% rate of return, you're making 3% on the spread. So within reason, it makes sense for you to be somewhat leveraged. You know, you don't want to be so leveraged that if anything goes wrong, it's going to put you out of business, you know? So you, and we tend to be pretty conservative about lending. We, we expect people to have some equity and a substantial amount of equity, actually, um, just because it's less risky on both sides. So, right. yeah, it's, it, and I understand, I mean, there's, I talk to a lot of beginning farmers who say, well, I, you know, I want to get started farming. I don't want to have any debt. And I think that's fine, but realize that, that debt can be a really powerful tool to help 
and it can be a tool that can hurt you. You know, I think of it, in fact, I wrote a, an article here a couple of months ago and I referred to debt as a chainsaw. I mean, it's, it's something that <laughs> it can help you accomplish something really quickly and do some really good work for you. But if you don't know how to manage it, it can cut your leg off. You know, I mean, it's, it, so it can be, it can be a powerful tool and it can be a really dangerous tool as well. So you just have to know how to manage it. You know, you don't, you wouldn't go and operate a chainsaw without reading the owner's manual first, but unfortunately there are certainly people who are willing to go out and take a loan without knowing the first thing about how money works and how, how profitability is calculated or whether it makes any sense to make a capital investment or not, or how things are going to cash flow. Um, and you can get hurt doing that. So how, how do I know if it makes sense to make a capital investment? How do I know if I'm quote unquote ready to borrow money? People come to us and they'll, and they'll apply for a loan and then, and we'll walk through what we're looking at, you know? Okay. So what's your working capital position? We're going to gather a balance sheet to begin with and we'll walk through the balance sheet and say, okay, here's your overall equity position. Here's the solvency of your farm operation. Now we're going to go up to the top and we're just going to look at current assets, current liabilities and figure out working capital because that's a measure of risk and your resilience. And, um, and so if that all looks pretty good, then we're going to look at your cash generating potential. And we're going to look at the cash flow and see, are you going to be able to not just make the loan payment, but still cover all of your operating expenses, cover your family living, um, do the capital asset replacement. If you're short on working capital, we're going to put that in and say, well, are you able to build up your working capital position? Not in one year, but we'll say four years. And, uh, you know, and we'll look at that. And if that all, if those numbers all work out, um, you know, then, then we can probably move forward. But um, I like something that you just said there, Paul. It's not like at all. I mean, things like that working capital don't have to be perfect now, but the investment has to be pushing things in the right direction. Right. Yeah. And we'll look at history, too. You know, we'll gather three years of tax returns and we'll say, well, are you heading in the right direction or are you heading in the wrong direction? And, you know, we want to see that cash flow and, and the profitability are increasing each year. Um we tend to emphasize cash flow more probably than we do profitability, but we want to see both going the right way, you know, because they're both important. So I saw a slideshow that you had put together some time ago and it had a, it had a great quote. I don't think this was your quote. I think it was somebody else who said the next best thing to finding out that you're right is to find out that you're wrong as quickly as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forget where I got that out of the newspaper. I think, yeah, I love that quote because it, yeah, it's so true. You know, even if even if you're not on the right track, as long as you find out pretty quickly that you're on the wrong track and get onto the right track, you're going to be a lot better off. How do I find out that I'm on the wrong track or on the right track? What are my key tools that I'm using to do that? That well, that's where you want to do an annual analysis of your farm, you know, and do it do a cash flow analysis as well as a profitability analysis. And I think that in the Fearless Farm Finances book, we tried to we tried to lay it out in a way that's farmer friendly and understandable that it doesn't read like a, like an ag economics textbook um, and show you how to, how to do those, you know, how to calculate those and, and calculate all the different ratios, even though you don't have to calculate all 21 ratios that the farm financial standards council would, would recognize, but there might be five key ratios that you'd want to take a look at um, each year. And if you're, and there's in that book and, and this is available online too, there's something called the farm finance scorecard. So if you can calculate the ratios, um, you can plug them into this farm finance scorecard and it'll show you in a visual, 
where you're vulnerable and where you're strong. And you can plot that out. And if, and you're not necessarily going to be strong in every area, but as long as you're mostly strong in most areas, um, you're probably going to live to, to farm another day. If you're, if you find yourself vulnerable in a lot of categories, then you want to start making some changes and there are things that you can do. Um, you know, and it might be, it might be increasing your net income. It might be bringing in off farm income. It might be restructuring debt. You know, there's a lot of different things that can be done if you find that you're on the wrong track. Well, and I, I like that you that you just threw out really quickly three examples of things that you can do if you're on the wrong track. It's not all about increasing your net income. You know that there are there are other options that are available to you. Oh, sure. Yeah, the quicker so, you figure that out, the more options that are going to be available available to you. You know, and I think, the, and this goes back to my experience with the farm center. I think there's a tendency that people, when they they feel themselves getting into financial trouble. They may not know, they may not have calculated, but they feel it. You know, they're, they're not able to cover their bills for a couple of months or they're, they're making those tough choices. Like, do I pay this bill or that bill? Do I put this on a credit card, which that I know I can still get feed delivered? Um, do I stop paying my utility bill in December because I know they're not going to shut the power off until April? Uh, you know, making those types of tough decisions, that's when you know you're you're probably on the wrong track. You don't even have to figure it. You don't have to sit down and calculate a bunch of numbers. You know you're on the wrong track. And the quicker that you get some help, and, it, and you don't have to do it for yourself, call the Wisconsin Farm Center, call your county extension agent, talk to your lender. Um, you know, people will help you. But but I, I saw too many people who they got into that situation. They figured, well, if I keep my head down and I keep farming and I just farm that much harder, um, Every day that I'm on this farm is a day that somebody hasn't taken me off of it. Well, at some point it, you're, you're going to come to the end and there's and every day your options become less and less. And that's why it's so critical to get to people early on, you know, as soon as they're on the wrong track, get them back on the right track or get yourself back on the right track. Which really means that even before you start farming, putting together these financial statements and understanding right from the very beginning, becomes a critical way to know what direction your business is heading in year after year after year, rather than saying, well, I, I don't, you know, I'm so small. I don't need to worry about that right now, or we're just getting started. So the numbers are all going to look bad anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important to figuring this stuff out before you get into that situation, before you're already farming, um, before you're under stress, you know, it's been proven that once a person is under stress, they, they you get sort of tunnel vision. You know, you, you can only focus on so many things. And the more stress you're under, the fewer things you can focus on. And so um, so some people, when they're when they're under serious financial stress, they literally can't do anything to help themselves with that situation. You know, once they're into it. Yeah, I think I think the term for that in the in the techie world is limited cognitive bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, term. you know, you just, you, you, you literally lose the ability to think. Yeah. And, uh, I, I like to say, you know, it's, it's a story I tell and, and I tell this about finances as well as about managing employees, as well as about, uh, managing relationships with, with other people on the farm or in your family. It's, you know, we used to say in Taekwondo class, you know, when's the right time to learn Taekwondo, Paul? <laughs> yeah, before you get in the kind of fight in the alley. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, you know, I always, I mean, I, it's one of the things that I, I like to tell beginning farmers is, hey, 
start running those running those financial statements before you even have a farm, you know, get in the habit. And I think it was you that actually told me that that you when you were just fresh out of college, you used to and you were just getting started in your life. You used to just run a balance sheet every month, I think. I did. Yeah, I did for many years. And (laughs) it seems kind of crazy because I had virtually nothing. In fact, I started with negative net worth because I had student loans and I had a a payment on a small truck and, and I had basically no, no money in the bank, nothing, you know, but, you know, but I'm starting from that and feeling like kind of a loser every month I put together my balance sheet and I could see that I was gaining ground, you know, and I went from negative to positive and, you know, I kept on chugging along. I think it's one of the things that really gets in the way sometimes of dealing with financial issues in a forthright manner is that there's so much guilt and shame associated around that. I mean, you just, I mean, you just said, Oh, I, you know, I, I had, I had negative, I had, I had negative net worth. Um, I almost think that a lot of times that that translates to negative self-worth, you know? And one of the things I feel like happens with business finances a lot is that people, they don't address the issues when they first come up because it, it hits on all those shame buttons. I'm doing something wrong. I'm not doing something right. I'm not good enough. And I'm losing the farm. Uh, and, and I think our natural inclination in that situation is to pull back into our shells. Yeah. And I, I really like what you said about, uh, you almost have to completely counteract that when you start to sense that there's trouble and go get help because, and I right, this is true of any situation. You know, it, I mean, you have a lot of options when you've still got tread on the tires and you notice that the tread on the tires is getting a little low. But once your tire blows out, you don't have any options anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to ask for some help, you know, and um, we're, we're Americans are self-reliant. Farmers are probably the most self-reliant people on the planet. And and so for them to admit that they need some help with something is really, really difficult, especially financial issues, you know, because it's a, it's a, it's a thing that we're not comfortable talking about in public and to go to somebody that you don't know and ask for help. You know, we've dealt with this in the farm center where, you know, to pick up the phone and call that 800 number um, took a, a, an unbelievable amount of courage for, for people. It's a really humbling kind of a thing to do. Um, and for anybody, I, I had a call here a few months ago from a farmer in the state that is a, a very good farmer, very successful person, um, and, but was having some pretty serious cash flow issues. And she called up and she said, you know, I'm embarrassed that I'm in this situation. Well, they had a couple of bad turns that went against them. Fundamentally, their business is really strong. They had a couple of things that happened that, that put them in a cash flow crunch. And we sat down and we looked through it and, and it was a relatively easy fix. Um, but it was something, sometimes when you get so close to it, you can't see what the fix is. So just coming in from the outside, taking a quick look at it and saying, you know, you're doing so many things really right. It's just, you got, you had one bad thing turned against you or two bad things that turned against you. And here's how we can get it back on track. You know, just do this, this, and this, and we can get it back on track. And that's, that's what they've done. But you know, if you, if you, don't recognize it and you, and you can't muster the courage to call somebody to give you a hand with it. 
And that, and sometimes it really helps having somebody come in from the outside who isn't so close to your business and can, you know, can kind of see the bigger picture too. If you're not in a place like Wisconsin that has a farm center, where do you go for that kind of help? There are um, farmers assistance programs in many states, not every state, but quite a few have some sort of a farmer's assistance program. Um, most of them came about after the farm crisis of the 80s, you know, and they were, a lot of them were federally funded. Some were uh, funded through state resources at um, at the Department of Ag. The Farm Center actually has three sources of funding. One is general purpose revenue, so that's property tax dollars, but that's actually a smaller percentage. They get a, a, a pretty good grant from the federal government every year to run the mediation arbitration program, which also funds some of the financial counseling work that's done there. And then there's also some program revenue that comes in uh, for from a couple different sources. But um, yeah, so there, there's help in quite a few different states. Extension is involved in in a number of states. Um, there are other organizations, you know, um, here in Wisconsin, we've got the technical college system, which is excellent. And they've got a lot of really good faculty around the state. Um, there are private organizations that are doing good work. Farm Aid is another one that, um, you know, at the national level that uh, brings in some money and, and funds some of the hotlines and things like that. So there's most states have some some assistance in one form or another. Some are better than others. You know, some are are better resourced than others. But uh, but just about every state has something. Paul, I know you don't listen to the podcast all the time, but it, uh, you've got that. I think a five minute commute to work. You said. Yeah, now I do. <laughs> and I and and you don't have the tractor time like most of my listeners do, so that that kind of gets in the way too, I suppose. But um, we like to do a lightning round at the end of all of our shows. So a um, bunch of just quick, short questions here that we like to ask everybody. What's your favorite tool on the farm? And I'm going to ask you. To, of course, you're probably going to have to give me a financial tool. You're not allowed to say a chainsaw at this point. Oh shoot, that would have been my yeah. That's always <laughs> my go-to. Yeah. <laughs> um. Probably, I'd have to say balance sheet, you know, that's the place to start. And then cash flow projection. Can I say two? Yeah, you can say two. Okay. So we'll let you do it. So um, what's the weirdest financial challenge that you've ever been presented with? Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy, I, I get... I get a lot of them. I had, uh, there, <laughs> when I was a county extension agent, I had a guy that called and left me a message and said that he wanted to start a water buffalo dairy. And the, and I could, I would have sworn it was one of my college roommates calling just to give me a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> I called the guy back. He's a real guy. And, uh, and I ended up helping him put together a business plan and he is milking water buffalo now. So yeah, so that's probably one of the one of the more odd ones that I've gotten that, that actually turned out pretty good. That's really great. I like that. What's what's your favorite type of farm to work with as a lender? You know, um, I guess my favorite type is someone who is who it's more about the the personality of the farmer as opposed to the type of operation. Um, someone who is open to talking through new ideas, who's open to suggestions, who really wants to understand the finances of their farm and how to do a more effective job of managing the finances of their farm. And I've seen people like that on one acre and I'm thinking of another guy. He's up in, uh, up in the Wausau area 
it's about a 400 and some cow dairy. Uh, when I was at the farm center, I would go up once a year and sit down. We'd spend an entire day going through his finances. And I, I met him during the farm crisis or the, during the dairy crisis, excuse me, of 09. And, uh, and just love the guy cause he's got such a, a great financial mind and, and is really open to, to suggestions and ideas and does a fantastic job. You know, so I, I've seen people at all scales who do a really, really good job, but those are the kinds I like working with. That's great. And uh, I like to ask people what farmer superpower they would choose, but what banker superpower would you choose, Paul? Oh, boy. I would like the ability to make a loan to every single person that walked through the door and, and know that it would they had the ability to pay it back. <laughs> that would make the job so fun. <laughs> you know, it's, that's the tough part of being a, a lender is having to say no to people. And, and, but I try, when I do that, I try never to just say no with nothing else to go along with that. I try to, to me, it's kind of a teaching opportunity. If there's a reason that we have to say no today, it doesn't mean that we're gonna have to say no a year from now or two years from now. And so we can, we can walk through the financials and say, well, here's why we had to say no today. Here's what it's going to take for us to say yes two years from now. And I suppose as a, as a borrower, that's the sort of no that I would really value because that's, that's the kind of banker that I'd want to work with. Well, good. Yeah, I hope so. Besides somebody that would just say yes to my wildest dreams, you know, Paul, I think this has been, this has been a lot of fun. It has. How do you do, how do you do that with finances? That's not supposed to be a fun topic. (laughs) Well, you gotta be passionate about it. I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if anybody else agrees with us. Right, Paul? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for making the time today. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. It's been great. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 39 of the farmer to farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Dietman. That's D I E-T-M-A-N-N. I'm excited to announce a series of workshops that I'm doing this fall on employee management. Employees make it possible to get more done, but managing workers and their work takes dedicated time, energy, and processes. I'll be presenting full-day workshops on managing and motivating employees on the farm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on Monday, November 30th, and in Columbia, Missouri on Tuesday, December 8th. More information, including schedules and registration information, is available at purplepitchfork.com slash betterboss. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And you know what else? I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. I know a lot of things, but I know that I don't know all of the great farmers out there. Please visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com and use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear. I'd also like to thank, I say, you know, so many people who have reached out over the last couple of weeks in particular and said that the podcast actually means something to them. You know, it's kind of funny. I stand here in my my office or my studio and I talk into the mic and it's like talking into dead air and knowing that this man that it matters to people really makes a difference to me. I'm so honored that you show up and listen to the show and that you find value in it. 
I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to serve the movement. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.